Okay, so tonight we're going to be starting up in the book of Ezra. We finished Second Chronicles last week in our verse-by-verse through that part of the Old Testament. And we just had that whole apex, that zenith moment where that last group of those four bad kings, Zedekiah being the last king of Judah around 586 B.C., in a sequence of uh, sieges and taking away of captives, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, fell. Uh, the temple was destroyed. The city walls that protected the people were burnt and destroyed, just plundered, decimated. But unlike the Assyrians, uh, when they conquered the northern kingdom uh, a century before that in 722 B.C., the Assyrians moved people out and moved other people in. But when the Babylonians plundered Judah, the land just went desolate. But if you recall, when God wrote to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah the prophet, to the captives in Babylon, he said to, you know, plant vineyards, get married, let your kids get married, have be fruitful, basically bloom where you're planted. For, for 70 years, the land of Judah will be desolate and lay fallow so that the Sabbath years that have been owed to the land that were in God's Old Testament law to Israel that they did not keep, 70 years uh, for all those years, they didn't do it, that the ground would, in a sense, heal. And really, the spiritually, God was definitely doing something as well in Judah during the time. So during that time of captivity, it was just nothing much. Like, Judah was just abandoned, abandoned homes, abandoned stuff. The, the Babylonians didn't relocate people to take over those, those homes in the southern kingdom. They were just, just abandoned, right? That's what it was like for them. So that was the situation during that 70-year period. But then, after the 70 years, God began to move. And so when we come to the book of Ezra, we're picking up going forward from that captivity. So it's kind of abrupt. Last week, it's like, wow, here's the end of Judah, the southern kings, Zedekiah, all that happens are taken away, all the captives, the third sequence of people being taken away, 70 years, and then God begins to move again, which brings us to the book of Ezra. And as we go through Ezra, this book has a pretty clean, simple template. There are six chapters that revolve around Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua. Zerubbabel, the political leader, uh, descendant of Jeconiah, the the king, one of the kings there. So Zerubbabel is actually, (laughs) we'll see him on Saturday night as well, because he's in the genealogy for Jesus. So he's he's, he's in both books that we're in right now. So Zerubbabel becomes like a key player in these first six chapters, along with Jeshua, the priest, Jeshua, the priest, his grandfather was executed before the fall of Babylon. And so that's a detail we get for him. So these are two generations separate, you know, grandchildren coming back 70 years later to rebuild and be used in their timeline to go forward. The thing that we've been talking about this with worship generation, that we need to see a vision not just for our children's generation, but our children's children's generation going forward. So the book is very appropriate for that idea that Whatever seems like an end for one generation, there's always a new beginning for the next generation, and that's really a theme with the book. So the first six chapters with Zerubbabel and Jeshua take place around uh, 538 to 516 B.C. So 538 to 516 is the window where you really see Zerubbabel. Now, then you get another, you get this break, and then Ezra, who is the book's attributed to, he comes in the picture later on, but he's actually a later generation. His timeline is more like 458, 457 B.C. So if you follow a sequence of years, because I like to set the stage so you can grasp it. And then Esther's in the middle, and we're going to get, we're doing this book of Ezra. Then we're going to do 
uh, Esther and Nehemiah. So we're going to get all these key people that are from the captivity and the return from the captivity. But Zerubbabel is 538 B.C. Then you get Esther. She's 483 B.C. Then Ezra himself is 458 B.C. And then Nehemiah is 444 B.C. So that's the chronological sequence as you're coming, you know, from the from BC timeline. That they this is how we lay them out. So the, that's they they share like a, a 80 hundred year timeline: Zerubbabel, uh, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah. That's how it goes. So that's our connection. But of course, also Zechariah and Haggai, the prophets, are in this timeline as well. So I have a whole new group like a whole new group of characters and prophets now than what we had before. Because before when we ended Chronicles, there was Jeremiah. We know Daniel and Ezekiel were the same timeline prophesying. We get a whole new group of people now. We're going forward a couple of generations. And like I've been saying along with Sam Coca, Joanna and Sam's son, Mark, when we dedicated him, hey, we dedicated him like a year ago. Give him 80 years. We've got the next century. That's kind of... Like we're now in Mark Coca's them. You follow me? So it's good to have that context for all of us as we go forward tonight. So now we pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 1 with that timeline to help us understand the events that are going on. Now the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation through all, all of his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me and has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you all his people? May his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, let the men of his place help him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, besides the free will offerings for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, with all whose spirits God had moved, uh, moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with precious things besides all that was willingly offered. And King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Midrith, the treasurer, and he counted them out to Sheshabar, the prince of Judah. This is, uh, and Sheshabar is considered Zerubbabel, by the way, interchangeable names, the, like the Babylonian name and the Hebrew name. That's how most people interpret those two names because they're used interchangeably to describe the same person with those two different names just like Daniel and Meshach, Shagar, and Abednego had their names changed. Similar situation. Verse 9. This is the number of those things that were counted out. This is the number of them. 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Sheshabazar took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Some key things in the context right away is we get Cyrus. Now, the Assyrians were the superpower that were then overthrown by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians were overthrown by the Medo-Persians and eventually Alexander the Great 
and the Greeks defeated the Medo-Persian Empire, and then that became subdivided. The Greeks became the Seleucid Empire in four subdivisions of the four generals of Alexander the Great during the Intertestament time period. But here, Cyrus comes to power, and this is a fascinating name because in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet lived around 750 B.C. So we're talking hundreds of years before this time. It'd be like during the time of the Revolutionary War, a prophet arose up and said certain things about your life and you're fulfilling it right now. Because God called Cyrus by name through Isaiah the prophet. And according to the Jewish historian, the famous one, Josephus, considered one of the greatest historians of all time, that the captives showed Cyrus in the book when he came to power that he was fulfilling the prophetic scriptures of the Hebrew people from Isaiah the prophet. And so that actually... Like I said, it's in the book of Isaiah. It's there. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28 is where God calls him by name. And then as chapter 45 starts for a number of verses, God talks about what he's going to do through this man hundreds of years before he lived, which again affirms just how God says, you know, it's always me because I tell you the future before it happens because he's outside of time and he can do that. And he does that. And that's how he proves himself always with the prophetic word, including not just kings like Cyrus or cities being destroyed, what will happen to him like Tyre, but the person and the work of his son, Jesus Christ, and all those wonderful prophecies that he fulfilled in his first coming, and the ones that are yet to happen in his second coming. So Cyrus is that guy, and the Lord spoke of him that for this very reason he was raised up to release the captives, that they would go back. But in going back with these temple treasures, we get another detail from the list of things that's there. There's no altar of incense. There's no table of showbread. These things are they're gone. The golden lampstand and, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. Thus, here is where we realize during that time that Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple burned, these precious items that God decreed that would actually be considered probably the greatest artifacts on planet Earth that they're buried somewhere in the Middle East, they disappeared. So that could be a little discouraging for the next generation going back because you're not going back with like, hey, we're going to redo the temple, but, you know, we're kind, of, we're kind of missing a few things here, Dad, Grandpa. Like, we're missing, like, the Ark of the Covenant. We're missing the showbread. Like, so, yeah, that's, that's what, can you, what can you say? As it was, they even declared when they went into captivity 70 years before, two generations ahead that went into captivity, that the sins of previous generations, the sins of our fathers, have come upon us, and we bear the brunt of it. So even the generation, two generations before this one, experienced that. But it's not about, like, what people did before our timeline that scarred or hindered us or handicapped us for our timeline. Again, it's about what we choose to do and how we see it in our timeline and what we make of it. That's really what it always comes down to with the Lord and even in general in the human experience. It's not what's going on, but how we respond to it. You'd be encouraged as a Hebrew, as a Jew, to see the prophecy of Isaiah fulfilled in this King Cyrus. But of course, how much more for us as Christians to see Jesus fulfill all those prophecies of Isaiah as well. And what's even more profound for us than it was for Cyrus, seeing the scriptures shown to him by the Jewish scribes of his time, when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948 in Israel, there it is, the whole book of Isaiah predating the time of Christ, confirming all those prophecies of Christ. So he was encouraged, like, hey, I'm in the Bible. 
How much more us that the one we follow was all declared, it's confirmed. You can go to Jerusalem and see the Dead Sea Scrolls right there on display. I went there in 92 and there they were and I just stared at them. I couldn't believe I'm looking at the scroll of Isaiah, all the prophecies of Christ, Isaiah 53, all of them. The Virgin, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 7. God tells us what's going to happen before it happens. So if you focus on that, you won't get so upset that you're missing a few items for the, for the road trip back home. A home that you probably have never seen and only heard about. Now, those are important context elements in this story. And as I mentioned, the Medo-Persian Empire displaced the Babylonians. And they're under a new superpower who is definitely a more favorable one than the Babylonians. God had his business for how he dealt with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, but God had his plan for the Persians and how he would work and move through them. But this phrase, it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus. God is always on the throne. That's what this reminds us of. Worship generation. When God wants to stir up the spirit of someone, that's what he does. When he Whatever we think, you know, you can wake up one day in Babylon under the Medo-Persian Empire and you've been there for 70 years or you're 20 or 30 years of age and this is where you grew up. You've heard about the motherland and all the things that happened and you, all that, you know, your grandpa, so Mordecai told you this story and that story, but you live in a real world like, well, this is our world now and Jeremiah the prophet told us to do this and we're just doing it. And by the way, we're told that there's probably at least one to three million Jews in the Persian Empire at this time. So the number that goes back is quite small proportionately compared to the amount of people that were there. And we're also told by extra biblical writings that the Jews thrived in commerce and really in the Medo-Persian Empire had equal rights for economic gain working in business with the Medo-Persians. Right? So see, in some cultures, because of your ethnicity or even your gender, you'll be held back from economic opportunities. Right? We all understand that. Sometimes by law. But there's extra biblical writings that tell us that the Jews thrived in merchant trading and all these things under the Medo-Persians and even in Babylon become very successful. So the people that were leaving were leaving something very successful that's a known, and what do we say all the time? We'll take a dysfunctional known over a step of faith for potentially better known. Because humans learn how to function with dysfunction, and they prefer what they know as opposed to stepping out in faith to what they don't know. And that's like that our whole life. That's my week right now. That's my life. That's your, that's your life. Unless you're in a rut. We don't want that to happen. So... Here in the midst of this situation, the Spirit of God moves upon this king. And you wake up one day, and you're Jewish, and you're there, and you're thriving. You got your vineyards, you got your wife, you got your husband, you got your newborn, and there it is. Cyrus says, the Lord has called me to do this. Who, which of the Hebrews wants to go back and rebuild the temple? Because God's put me over all this, and he's called me to do this, and I'm calling you to do it. You're like, Wow. If you'd only been here like last, last year when I wasn't doing well financially, I'm doing pretty good right now. You know? The, the ticket out of California f- four or five years ago for a lot of people looked good when they weren't doing good. But if you're here right now doing good, yeah, 75 degrees still beats 110 in Phoenix. You know what I'm saying? You're like, <laughs> yeah. They were, they were prospering. 
God stirred. But then we get this phrase that all, all whose spirits God moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So they're being stirred up for a spiritual purpose. And verse 5 tells us, so the Lord stirred up Cyrus according to the scriptures and the prophecies of Isaiah. But then he just stirring up the people. So you can just imagine everyone at the cafe that day, the Hebrew cafe, and they're all talking about what to do. Ah, we're doing good, doing good. That's for the young people, you know. They need to do that kind of stuff, you know. We, we, you know that that's uh, we'll fund it. Right? I say that all the time when you get older. Like, yeah, I'd rather fund it than do it, right? We'll fund it. Hey, hey, how much? How much? We'll fund it. Yeah, we'll do that. Any teenager going out in the mission field for a trip, we'll do that. We'll fund that. Yeah, you know, we'll, we'll do that. See, the, the people are like, ah, oh, we'll fund it, but you go. But at least to their credit, they did fund it and they encouraged them. It's a pretty, pretty encouraging chapter. But here's what I come back to for all of us. It's nice to see the Lord stir up someone above us to make favorable laws on behalf of us. And wouldn't we love to see that going forward in the future for every generation? Particularly the next one, the youngest one, Z and whatever comes behind him. But what really gets my attention is the spirits whom God moved upon, that he moved upon. And we talk about this. You sometimes wonder, like, why you're so stirred up to do something that you've never thought to do before in a moment's time when people, you think they'd be just as stirred up as you are, but they're just not. They're just not, they're just, they're not. You're like, how can we not go back to Jerusalem? Do it. My heart's burning in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You know, like, I'm just, I, I can't even think of anything other than, Ma, Pa, I got to go to Jerusalem. I got to get on this caravan. I got to book a ticket in the cheap seats or something. I'm going to Jerusalem. Well, son, daughter, when will we see you again? I don't know, but I just, I got to go. But there's other people like, I'm not feeling it at all. Right? Here's the important thing. It's to know when God's stirring you up. That's what really matters. It's not my job to discern if God's stirring you up. If you come to me and tell me, hey, you know, I'm from the Philippines. I've immigrated here. I've got a great job and benefits. God's called me to go back to the Philippines and minister in a maximum security prison to to, uh, rapists and murderers. What do you think of that? I'm thinking, well, you ask me what I think? Do you ask me what I think? Yeah, yeah, this true story, Lito. You ask me what I think? Yeah, I'm like, "I I think you're supposed to go. Because what immigrant who's gotten that far ahead in the game plan in America would want to go back to a prison of murderers and rapists and minister to them? Like, you would never wake up and think that. That's probably the Lord. You ask me, and I'm telling you. By the way, he did go. And he served in prison for years, actually, and came back to Los Angeles and prospered years later. First, very beginning of this church, when the first missionaries were supported. Lido. He used the worship generation name, too. <laughs> I sometimes wonder if that worship generation in the Philippines somehow has a connection to that. You know, one of those overseas things you never know. Those, whatever, the Lord knows. Hey, you need to know. That's why we need a strong walk. We need to know when the Spirit of God is moving upon us to do something that we never even thought of doing before. And there's an opportunity and he's moving on us. And you're like, why does anyone else feel this way? Well, it's not for them. It's for you. Don't be afraid to take that step of faith. So when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then he adds what's needed to us, but he'll confirm it. 
The one who seeks finds, the one who knocks the doors open, and the, the one who asks receives. You know, it's like, it's, it's there. But you, what you want to do is recognize when all of a sudden the Spirit of God is upon you and moving you to rise up for whole, some whole new adventure with the Lord. And if you do it in your 20s, you'll probably do it in your 30s. And if you do it in your 30s, you might just do it in your 50s. And if you do it in your 50s, you'll probably still do it in your 70s. But if you don't do it in your 20s, you probably won't do it in your 30s. And you won't even hear the cadence when you're in your 40s. You won't even hear the pitch. See, my hearing is so bad in this year, this year, my right ear, I can't even bear to hear it all. And I'm going to do a hearing test next month. And I'm telling you, I've done these before. I'm not, they're going to play all these pitches. And they go, do you hear that? You ever had these hearing tests, you older people? Or it's like, this thing is like, so when are you going to turn it on? And it's been on for three minutes, you know? <laughs> you think they're messing with you. That's what people do with the Lord when they don't respond to the Spirit moving them. They lose the pitch. You don't hear it at all. So respond to the stirring when God's moving you to arise for the things of the Lord. Otherwise, you're going to just be like an old man that doesn't have pitch in his right ear. Don't lose the pitch. Don't lose that pitch and frequency. You want, you want to hear it. Now we read on in chapter 2. Now, this is kind of like Chronicles here. We've got a lot of names. So we're going to go on one of our name journeys. But when we go through these names, I want you to think about something. These names are identified with a spiritual thing. With stepping out in faith to a whole new life, leaving everything they know behind to go to everything they do not know in front of them. And that's worth noting. Now, these are the people of the province who came back from the captivity of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon, who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, everyone to his own city, because they had a record where they're from. That was all the Jewish way. Now, those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, there's that priest, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Milshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. Now, briefly here on this second verse, these are 11 names in Nehemiah's account. There's 12, like the apostles or the tribes, for whatever reason, one of the names is missing on this list in this record, but there actually were 12 unharmonized. And so that's worth noting that you had this leadership and these 12. God loves the number 12, just for record. The people, the number of the men of the people of Israel were the people of Paros, 2,172, the people of Sheftiah, 372, the people of Ara, 775, the people of Pahath, Moab, the people of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812, the people of Elam, 1,254, the people of Zatu, 945, the people of Zakai, 760, the people of Bani, 642, the people of Bibe, 623, the people of Asgad, 1,222, the people of Adonakim, 666. The people of Big Vive, 2056. The people of Aden, 454. The people of Atur, of Hezekiah, 98. The people of Bezai, 323. The people of Jorah, 112. The people of Hashem, 223. The people of Gibar, 95. The people of Bethlehem, 123. The men of uh, Netuf, 56. The men of Anioth, 128. The people of Asmaveth, 42. The people of Kirjath Iram, Shephira and Biroth, 743. The people of Ramah and Geba, 622. Excuse me, 621. 
the men of Mishmash, 122, the men of Bethel and Ai, 223, the people of Nebo, 52, the people of Magbish, 156, the people of the other Elam, 1,254, the people of Haram, 320, the people of Lod, Hadid, and Ano, 725, the people of Jericho, 345, the people of Sena, 3,630. So these are identified by their villages. So it'd be like if Orange County just got plundered 70 years ago, and you're like coming back, like, you know, my parents own property in Yorba Linda, like, and I would, like, hey, I heard our, our grandparents went to school together, you know? Like, didn't they go to school at J. Sarah or something, like at the private school? Like, that's what it'd be like. They're all going back to a territory or a region that they're from. It's like, well, my parents own property in Huntington Beach. I'm going to go get the sea breeze and the smell of campfire. I'm going, like, somewhere up between, you know, Beach Boulevard and, you know, Indianapolis is a property there. Like, you're like, that's, that's what it'd be like. Two generations removed going back to these places they'd heard about and, you know, oh, you know, grandpa's saying, oh, son, you know, before Nebuchadnezzar came, before all those wicked kings, let me tell you the vineyards were so sweet. Oh, when you get back there, you plant, you know, like you're visiting great grandpa in, in um, senior living. He's saying, son, when you get there, he pulls out a little thing of seeds. Like these are the seeds you want to plant when you get back to Bethlehem. I took these seeds with me when we, when we left as a little kid. My, my dad gave them to me. Now you, when you go back, like Joseph, when he said in Egypt, you bury my bones in the promised land, right? Like this is where they're from. It's funny because I was born in Cleveland. And as a kid, we used to go to Cleveland. When my dad would be serving the Marines somewhere, like, like war, we'd go back and live with my mom's family in Cleveland for a year. So I grew up cheering for the Indians and the Browns. Those are my teams. I'm, I'm from Ohio. My brother, sister, and I were all delivered by the same doctor in the same Catholic hospital in Cleveland. And it's just like, whenever I go to Cleveland, I feel like, I feel connected to Cleveland. And when we, my mom passed away right before COVID, and we flew back and buried her at St. Anne's Cemetery there. And we visited the old neighborhood, my brother and I, and it's like my sister, she wouldn't remember it. Me and my brother like, dude, look at the house I'm coming to. It was, it was so much bigger when we were kids, you know? It looks so small now. But the St. Anne's Catholic Church looks the same to me. It's right there. Remember we used to walk here? Um, yeah, and like, that's kind of what it's like. You just, you just, it's so weird. You want to hear news on Cleveland right now? Anything with Cleveland? I'm like, it's like, yeah, Cleveland. Cleveland, the mistake by the lake, right? Cleveland, the Guardians now, right? Like, hey, whatever, man. It's the, Cleveland. It's, it's the Guardians. Let's go. Anytime a Cleveland team is doing well in the playoffs, I'm always cheering for Cleveland. It's that link. I'm 62. And I'm telling you, if the Browns make the playoffs, I'm cheering them on. That's the way I was raised. I still got all my godparent family extensions all there, and they're all, they're all Cleveland fans. This is what it's like. I'm giving you a connection so you understand. These are names that are stepping out in faith, but they're going back to the heritage they received from their great, from their grandparents and their great-grandparents, which ultimately they received it from who? The Lord. The Lord gave, the lot belongs to the Lord. Yeah, I just, it's, you know, there's one plot at the cemetery. There's a plot in Cleveland where we bury my mom. There's like six of them with the family, you know, her sister and brother and I asked my dad, do you want to be married next to mom? He goes, no. 
<laughs> you know, they're divorced for years, but you're good friends. Like, no, no. I said, Dad, you know, you can't be buried at Point Loma now because, you know, there's no more plots there at the military thing there. So you can do Miramar with the jets or uh, next to mom. Said, no, no, not next to mom. And put me under the jets at Miramar. <laughs> but it's funny because Barbie used to go back to Cleveland a lot. And she's like, Joe, I want to be buried next to mom in Cleveland. All right, okay, well, you know, if you go before me, I'll follow up on that for you. These are real people, right? You follow me? These are real people, yeah. This is the way it was. Verse 36. The priests, the sons of Jediah of the house of Jeshua, 973, this is verse 36. The sons of Emer, 1052. The sons of Pasher, 1247. The sons of Hiram, 1017. So see, these are now identified not by their villages, but by their identity as priests and being Levites to serve the Lord. Verse 40. The Levites, the son of Jeshua, and Camiel, the sons of Hodviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmon, the t- sons of Akab, the sons of Hetetah, and the sons of Shobai, 139 in all. The Nithium, the sons of Ziha, the sons of Hashfua, the sons of Taboth. See, now a lot of people think the Nithium were the descendants of the Gibeonites. Remember who the Israelites couldn't expel because they made a covenant with them back in the book of Joshua. Or they're also considered maybe immigrants who became nationalized with Israel but took the lower-end jobs, which is pretty common anywhere you're out in the world. So that's, how, that's just how people are. So these are, that's who the Neathim is. And the sons of Kuros, the sons of Sahiah, the sons of Pardon, verse 45, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akab, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shema, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gideel, the sons of Gaher, the sons of Rhea, the sons of Reason, the sons of Nicoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Passe, the sons of Besai, the sons of uh, Asna, the sons of Mehum, the sons of Nefusim, the sons of Bakbud, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harher, the sons of Baaluth, the sons of Mehida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sierra, the sons of Tama, the sons of Nizia, and the sons of Hatifa. Now, going back to these people, if you read commentaries about them, they had, you know, served in Israel so long that their identity was with Israel. So they went into captivity with Israel, and they're coming back. You're like, hey, no, we're, we're, we're like people say, we're Americans. Don't try and make us a different type of American. We're Americans. And so in the same way, remember, in God's law, there was always a place for foreigners to be invited to the table with the things of the Lord. It was always that way. And so they might have had a lesser lot, but they identified with everything to do with the Lord. Verse 55. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotai, the sons of Sophereth, the sons of Peruda, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkon, the sons of Gidel, the sons of Shephatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth, of Zebeam, the sons of Ami. All the Nathenim and the children of Solomon's servants were 392. And these were the ones, verse 59, who came up from Telmela, Telharsha, Cherub, Aden, and Immer. But they could not identify their father's house or their genealogy, whether they were of Israel. So the genealogy was really helpful for a Jew, but if you didn't have it, that was not a good thing. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, 652, and of the sons of the priests, the sons of Hibiah, the sons of Kaz, and the sons of 
Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughter of Barzillai of, Gilead, of the Gileite, and was called by their name. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy but were not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled, and the governor said to them that they should not eat the most holy things till a priest could consult with the Urim and the Thummim. That was kind of like the, the lots, if you will, that the priest would use to determine the will of the Lord. Verse 64. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 men and women singers. Their horses were 736. Their mules were 245. Their camels, 435. Their donkeys, 6,720. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses, when they came to the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered freely for the house of God to erect it in its place according to their ability. They gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold dramas, dramas, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. So the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers and the gatekeepers, and the Nethinim dwelt in their cities and all Israel in their cities. So you caught the number there. It's 42,000 and some change plus people that came with them. So about 50,000. So again, it's a small group of people, really, in light of how many people were there it, in Babylon or Medo-Persian Empire who could have gone back. It's a, it's a very small number, percentage-wise. It is a very small number, which just reminds us again, it's a narrow gate. Like, it really is an, a narrow gate. And I'm not saying the other people left behind weren't serious about the Lord, but when you just see, when you see people go for it with the Lord, there's a reason there's only 30 mighty men for David. The 30 mighty men. There's just many are called, but few are chosen. It's just, it's just the way it is. We should never ever be surprised that when we're all in with the Lord, most people are not. Or that we're gonna go for this, most people don't. That's why it's so wonderful to read biographies of amazing people in church history who did amazing things. You just read like an Amy Carmichael biography or Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, right? through gates of splendor and you read like what would cause this young man you know who could have been anything in america the, the, the best of the best to go to the middle of ecuador and learn dialects that aren't even written and lay down his life for these people like this is the legacy of the church that we we this list of names is very special and whether i pronounce them right or not they they got their place in glory and it's noted what they did. And I just, I thought about this, like you think about names and what your name is identified with. My rival and peer, Shane Haran, was inducted into the Walk of Fame in Huntington Beach this summer during the US Open. With Trudy Madrid, the local surfer skateboarder I knew really well as well. Randy Carrasco from our, our church, you know, well, he pastor his own church now, but former deacon, he was down there because he knows all those guys. And, but you know, when you walk in front of Jack's Surf Shop, you see the Walk of Fame, and you see these names and these different people, and, and they're identified with a commonality of their association with surfing. And again, these people are identified with going for it to go back and rebuild all over the Jewish dream and the promises of God because they are still the people of covenant. And this is the generation, and these are the people, and their animals, their wealth. It's, it's like the wagon train coming through Colorado, through Donner's Pass. Like, this is just, 
There's no looking back. They were, they were going for it. They had just enough encouragement to step out in faith, but they really needed to find their own faith. Not only in their journey to get there, but who they become in this land. When they looked at those empty lots or those, what was left of the vineyards or the groves and all that stuff, to look at it and, and how they would perceive it. And so we read that they came back and they all went to their places. You know, they got like the, you know, like the city map, like, okay, this is the lot. Wow, this is where, man, this is where, this is where Grandpa's house used to stand right here. Oh, look, there's stones. Look, 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 look. Oh, wow. Oh, look, there's cement with their, the name and the year written in the cement. That's what it would have been like. And I think that's something we can all relate to, to appreciate the value of their faith. Just a reminder what our name is identified with going forward in 2023. What our name, Shane Haran is identified with the walk of fame. What is our name identified with for the kingdom of God? See, every time you, every time, like whether you, support a child with, you know, world vision or, or, or pack a shoebox for Franklin Graham and Operation Christmas Child or, or you give the Harvest Crusade. And, like, it, it's, it's what your name is associated with for the kingdom of God. Just think about that. When you've ever just prayed with a stranger, what your name is associated with. When you've opened your wallet and just gave a stranger money because they needed it. What you're associated with. Whether, you, whether they're scamming you or not, but you, you, you gave out the goodness of your heart to help them and their children there in front of Whole Foods or whatever. Every time you do a good deed in Jesus' name, your name is being associated with all those that came before us and all those that are coming after us who walk and live and serve by faith. Keep getting your name out there under his name. Because it's not the name that you shout like, oh, look at me. We're going to get that in Matthew. But really, God sees it. Because what does he say in Matthew 25? Anything you've done, and this is, you did it in my name, and you got a reward for it. A cup of cold water in my name, you get the reward for it. The reward is in eternity. The association of the name. Now we're going to read chapter 3 as well. So chapter 3, short chapter. When the seventh month had come, the children of Israel in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatila, and his brethren, they arose and built the altar of God, uh, the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring the cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to permission to the permission which they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Remember, that's how Solomon got the logs down there. Hey, just, if it works, it works. Give them credit. They're like, we're going to bring in the best wood. We're going to do, we're going to do things right. 
But an interesting phrase, it says here that they, they found the foundation of the altar. It says they set the altar, verse 3, on its bases. Can you imagine digging through the rubble in the burnt out temple, trying to find where was it? They're not going to set the altar up just anywhere. They're going to set it up where God had told them to set it up in the time of Solomon. That's important, the detail. They found it and did it right. And not only did they do it right, they had their priorities straight. Because blood is shed before you build the temple. The altar, see, going back to Abraham and Noah, you have altars without a temple throughout human history. Altar is a place of worship and sacrifice. Altar is a place of adoration and acknowledging substitution for your sins. Going all the way back to the dawn of creation. Why do we know that? Well, what did Abel do? He offered up lambs. Abel offered up a more excellent sacrifice. From the very dawn of creation, in the first generation after Adam and Eve, Abel understood that the place of an altar, of a sacrifice, that something pays the death sentence for our sin, which is the consequence of our sin, and that there's worship and adoration through it. We've always had the altars. See, we can worship the Lord anywhere, and we're, we're, we're always under the blood with Jesus. We might... Church history isn't about the biggest, grandest buildings where we gather. Church history is meeting in the catacombs or in house-to-house in Romania under Ceausescu trying to find the Christians. That's church history. Church history is baptisms in the 30s in the Ukraine when Stalin's starving all the people of the Ukraine in the middle of winter. That's church history. See, this baptismal up here is nice that Charlene has. It's a nice baptismal. It comes in handy when they do them, right? It's pretty cool. I've baptized people in creeks with Jeremy Camp in Indiana, in lakes in Virginia, in the Chesapeake Bay, in the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. I've poured pool water over someone who couldn't go in the pool because they have a terminal illness. Listen, man, we just, we're the church. Our faith is our altar. Our faith in Jesus, our availability to the Lord and what he's doing, that's our altar. The right priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness having the right priorities and so like yeah they want to see this and that but really it's the altar the worship of the lord always begins with the altar now we read on just a reminder we can always build altars to the lord no matter what's going on no matter where we're at bowing the knee and praising jesus we're building an altar verse eight now in the second month of the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So they used the same age line that David had, the revised one that David did, because originally it was 20, uh, 30, but David made it 20. Verse 9, Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers... Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God and the sons of Hanadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. 
For he is good, for his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. See, so now they're starting, they, you know, they, they got that going. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout to joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard afar off. (laughs) There's two loud noises that fight for control of the atmosphere. People wailing over a past they can never get back and people proclaiming praise for a future they're about to receive. It's that simple, isn't it? It's all perspective. I'm sure there was 90-year-olds that looked at that foundation and they were still praising the Lord because that's just how they were. That's how they were when they went away into captivity. That's how they were when they lived in captivity. And that's how they were even a senior, senior citizen traveling across country coming back from captivity. They were always that kind of person. They're always going to praise the Lord. Independent living, assisted living, memory care. They're just going to always be that person. That's how they always were. She was always like that. So most of the old people are lamenting, oh, Solomon, the temple of Solomon back in the day. Because that's what old people do, in case you old people don't know that. Back in my day, right? Oh, I've got surf stories like, oh, back in my day, we surf without leashes, you know. I won the pipe masters on a single fin. Like, you know, that's what old people do. Whoop-de-doo. Like, we want the young people just to be praising the Lord. We want the young people just praising the Lord. It's the day of the Lord. The young people for 20 years growing up in Babylon, and they made the journey, and they're pumped up. They're excited, and they're there, and they've been working the land for a year, and they see that cornerstone and all that going down, that, well, the, the foundation, and there's like, oh, they're just pumped up. They're, they're singing. They're praising. They got the tambourines out. It's, it's on. And then some young person looks at another young person, and says, what's up with the old people? What are they doing? Like, I don't know. They're just old people. That's what they do. Don't worry about it, you know? This is our day. This is our future. What did Jeremiah say to this, to their parents' generation in captivity that would carry on to theirs? I know my thoughts for you. They're not thoughts of evil, but thoughts to give you a future and a hope. That's what Jeremiah said two generations prior. So if their parents had received the word of Jeremiah in captivity and raised them under that word in the captivity, they'd be like, they probably have rap songs or whatever, cadence change-ups for future and a hope. Future and a hope. That's what they should have heard growing up. And when they saw that foundation, man, some of them were just shot at the top of their lungs, future and a hope. They saw their future. They saw faith for their marriages. They saw faith for their children. They saw faith for their future grandchildren. They saw a future and a hope. So whether you're 80 years old when they're shouting or you're 20 years old and they're shouting, if you're 20, don't let an 80-year-old poison you crying about the past. And if you're 80, learn from a young person to give praises for the future. Yes and amen. It's always the future and the hope.